0: Good morning, Fellowship Bible Church. It's such a pleasure for me to be back here. And um, I can't believe how fast this summer has gone by. Um, I was, we all, on behalf of the guys who have preached this summer, we are all so grateful for the opportunity to have come and to have been able to preach the word here at the church. And it has been a joy for us. And I hope it's also been beneficial for you as well. We just trust that the Lord was at work this summer orchestrating and that he had good for all of us involved in this, including Pastor David, who I'm sure you're all very eager to have back. But thank you so much for letting us come and minister the word to you. It's been our joy. Would you please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John? Last week, Daniel finished the exegesis of 1 John. We finished going through the entire book last week. And so this morning, what I hope to do is to step back and look at the book as a whole again and take away just a few points. But I'll get to that in just a moment. When I was with you the first time, I spoke about how Christianity, in a nutshell, is all about the witness of the apostles. And that witness of the apostles is all about Jesus. And the witness of Jesus is all about fellowship with the eternal God. And John is writing this letter to churches, second-generation Christians, who were confused and troubled uh, by lots of voices and conflict in the churches at the time. And he was writing this as something of a manifesto to say, this is what Christianity is. Hold fast to this. Because it's about fellowship with God by knowing Jesus through the witness of the apostles. And God wants us warmly to have fellowship with him. Because of what happened, because of what Jesus has done coming into the world and dying for us and rising again, and because of what is being proclaimed to us, our lives are to be transformed by this truth. Our lives are to be shaped by the gospel that has come to us. In other words, what I want to think about this morning is how now shall we live in light of 1 John, in light of the truth of Jesus, in light of the witness of the apostles? How does this practically shape us? Because God wants to produce a certain kind of gospel-shaped life as a result of this in us, in our lives, in our bodies, in our hearts. What does a gospel-shaped life look like? How do we live in light of this? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I'd like to reflect on how the message of 1 John ought to affect our lives practically, ought to shape us, given the truths that we've examined throughout 1 John this summer. I would like to reflect on two primary ways that the gospel is to shape us, or two primary things we are supposed to do in light of this wonderful message. As we do these two things, our lives will be shaped and formed by the gospel. Let me pray again. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we are here gathered because we believe in your son. We want to have rich fellowship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come. Fill me now, Lord. Clear my mind. Help me to speak. Help us to hear not the words of any man. Help us to hear your word summoning us and calling us to live in light of the truth of the gospel. Lord, would you please shape our lives that we would be people whose lives are flavored by characterized by the truth of the gospel. We need this, Lord. And I ask for your help now this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What should we do in light of 1 John? Number one, seek to obtain assurance of your salvation. Seek to obtain Assurance of your salvation. Now, friends, it's perfectly clear that the letter of 1 John was written to encourage Christians in their faith and to help them see that they have eternal life and that they have come to possess the true knowledge of God. Would you look at chapter 5, verse 13? And many people see this verse as sort of a purpose statement of the letter. There are several other purpose statements of the letter as well, but this one's pretty clear. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, John is writing 1 John to give believers assurance you do have eternal life. You do possess the knowledge of God. He is not doubtful of the people that he's writing to. Would you turn back to chapter 2? And look at verse 12 and 13 and 14. 2, 12, 13 and 14. Chapter 2, verse 12. I am writing this to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So John is not writing to these, these people because he's doubtful of them because he's suspicious, and because he's saying, you know, you should probably question the fact that you are real Christians. No, he's writing to people that he's confident of that they are Christians, that they do know God, that their sins are forgiven. But the interesting thing is, those people he's writing to aren't very confident about that. So John is confident of them, but we see that they're not necessarily confident about themselves. And so he's writing to them that they might have assurance. So we see from 1 John that true Christians whose sins are forgiven, who know the Father, who have overcome the evil one, true Christians can and do struggle with assurance of their salvation. I suspect that probably most people in this room have struggled with assurance of salvation, if not all, and maybe some are still struggling with that. It's not uncommon. For example, you might believe in Jesus Christ and yet be troubled by contrary voices or opinions. Maybe you watch something online. Maybe a, a friend of yours who used to be a Christian has left the faith and is now convinced that it's all a hoax. Or that some other religion is true. And these voices are now troubling you and you're wondering, do I really have the truth? Have I really heard from God? Do I really know God? I believe, but now I'm troubled. That happens. We might call that doubt, doubts about whether Christianity is true. Or you can know that the gospel is true. You can know that Jesus is true. And just wonder, am I saved? Am I born again? Are my sins forgiven? Will I make it to the end? We might say those are doubts not about whether Christianity is true or not, but just doubts about whether you're a true Christian or not. Christians can struggle with assurance. In Christian history... Some have thought that you cannot have assurance. In fact, they think it's arrogant and presumptuous to have assurance, to say that you know that you have eternal life, that you know that you're going to go to heaven, that you know that you really are right with God and born again. They'll say, that's arrogant. No one can know that. And that's not even healthy, because you should always be suspicious and in doubt. That will kind of keep you going your suspicion, your doubt about yourself. You'll get complacent if you're assured of your salvation. Perhaps you've heard people say that or you've read that. On the other hand, there are some who argue that if you don't have assurance, then you're not born again. Have you ever heard that before? You should know with absolute certainty and not have any doubts. Otherwise, you can't really be a true Christian. The Reformers, Luther, Calvin, and others, rightly resisted those two extremes that says you can never have assurance of your salvation, or you have to always have assurance of your salvation, or you are not a real born-again Christian. The Reformers rightly resisted those extremes because we see in Scripture that assurance is something that Christians can have, that they should have, but that real Christians don't always have it. There is there are times that they don't have it. And so for those who do struggle with that assurance of salvation, 1 John should be a great encouragement. You're not alone. You can be a real Christian and struggle with this, and yet there is a way that we can have assurance of our salvation. And not only can we have it, we should have it. We must seek to obtain Assurance of salvation and to help our fellow brothers and sisters who know Christ to obtain it also because it's one of the great blessings of the gospel allowing us to experience joy and peace. I want to share with you a few other verses outside of 1 John and then we'll come back to 1 John. Look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 2 Peter... Chapter 1, verse 10. Peter writes, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. So we see here, Peter is actually telling the believers, exercise diligence... In confirming that you are God's elect, that you are called and chosen of God. This shows us that assurance of salvation is something that we need to seek and be diligent to obtain. Look at Second Corinthians chapter thirteen. Second Corinthians thirteen. Verse 5. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So here he actually encourages them. You need to test yourself. You need to examine yourself. You need to look into yourself. And of course, he's confident that if they do, they will see that Christ is in them. He wants to give them assurance. But we see here that it's something to seek. It doesn't happen automatically. Hebrews chapter 6 says the same. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 Hebrews 6:11 And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. It requires some diligence, some focus, some attention in order to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And then back in 1 John chapter 3 verse 19. 1 John 3:19 John writes, We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. So there is a way to assure your heart that you belong to God. There's a way to calm the fears. There's a way to settle your spirit. And it's not automatic. But the Bible gives us the way to do this. And John is all about this very thing. So if you ask, okay, Brother Eli, it is clear that Christians can struggle with assurance and that it's not an automatic thing and that I need to seek it. So how do I do it? How do I find assurance of my salvation so that I might experience joy and peace in believing? Well, the good news is that the book of 1 John is all about this. It's the book you would go to if you want to know, okay, how do I do this? Well, 1 John is our answer. The book of 1 John is devoted to giving Christians assurance of their salvation. First of all, in answering the question, how do I know if I really have the truth? I've heard so many voices. There's, There's other people claiming that they have the truth. There's other religions. There's other versions of Christianity. And it can get confusing. How do I know that this really is the truth? And John tells us that the truth about God, if you really want to know who God is, what is true about him, you will know that through Jesus Christ who really came into the world in history. We're not talking about fables. We're not talking about philosophy. We're talking about the Son of God really came from heaven in history and he was seen and heard and touched by the apostles who saw him. And if you really want to know then, well, who is Jesus and what did he say about God and what did he do? John tells us, Listen to the witness of the apostles. They will tell you about Jesus. If you're listening to what the apostles proclaimed and you receive their witness, you have the truth about who Jesus is and therefore you have the truth about who God is. This is what he says in the first opening of, of the book. What we have What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, we proclaim to you that you may have fellowship with God. John also talks about the witness of the Spirit in chapter 2. He talks about how the Spirit confirms to us and immediately discloses to our souls the truth of the apostolic witness. The Spirit tells us what is true. Not apart from the apostolic witness, but in conjunction with it. When you hear the message of Jesus, when you hear about the message of the gospel, when you hear about your own sinfulness, your own inability to be right with God, when you hear about the grace of God in our Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done, the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, if you're a true Christian, confirms that message in your heart and tells you that this is true. And so John concludes the letter by saying, keep yourself from idols. Don't follow anything else. At the end of the letter, we know that the Son of God has come. Chapter 5, verse 20. And he has given us an understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life Little children, guard yourself from idols. Don't go anywhere else. Don't look anywhere else. Hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the gospel. But what about the question, okay, Brother Eli, I believe this is true. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. But how do I know that I'm born again? How do I know that my sins are forgiven? How do I know that I'm going to make it? to the end because unless I can have that assurance there's not a whole lot of joy and John gives us the way that we can know he gives us tests whereby we may know that we have eternal life my fellow preaching brothers spent this summer walking through these passages and these tests you'll remember them do you walk in the light Do you keep the commandments? Do you love the world or not? Do you abide in him? Do you do righteousness? Do you sin or not? John says in John 3, 1 John 3. Do you love the brethren? Do you confess the Son? You'll remember these tests. Now something's very interesting. It often happens that when people read 1 John, a letter that was written to give Christians assurance that they have eternal life. It often happens that when Christians read 1 John, the book sometimes or often takes away their assurance, right? John wrote this letter to encourage Christians, you have eternal life, and so we turn to it. Lord, I need some encouragement today. I'm feeling a little bit out of it. I feel like maybe I'm not born again. I need to go to 1 John to encourage myself. And then you run into these tests that he gives you. And often, in the experience of many Christians, and in the experience of my own self, the book can take away our assurance. How does it do that? Well, you read some of these tests. Like I said in 1 John chapter 3... No one who is born of God sins. Well, on the face of it, that should take away your assurance, right? (laughs) That should take away your assurance. On the face of it, no one who is born of God sins. In fact, you can't sin because you have God's seed in you. Or in chapter 2. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Let me just ask you, how would you answer that about yourself? If I pose the question to you, you are here at Fellowship Bible Church, you profess to be a Christian and know God. Do you keep the commandments? Not always. Not always. Thank you for being honest, brother. That's how we all feel, right? <laughs> Do you see how 1 John has the potential to take away your assurance if you, re- if you read it, if you ask yourself these tests, these questions? And yet John wrote to Christians confident that they know God, and he gave them these tests to encourage them that they might have joy and peace. And the answer to this trouble is not to not read the book of 1 John and just ignore it. That's not the answer. But to understand what John is really doing. And I think what happens is is that as Christians, we often misinterpret these. And I think that I'm sure the brothers, as they preached through this, dealt with this, so I won't go into it in any detail. But we often misinterpret these tests. And we fail to realize that John is talking at another level than most of the Bible. Because much of the Bible is from the perspective on the ground, telling the story as it happened, as God spoke to people, as God gave commandments, as they sinned, as God responded. We're kind of on the ground. Here's what happened next. Here's what happened next. Then God said this. Then God did this. Then Jesus came and said this. Then he did this. But the writings of John, they're doing something entirely different. Some of you might know this, but John the Apostle in church history has been depicted as an eagle because John is doing something different than just kind of telling us the story of what happened. John is soaring 10,000 feet above the story, looking down on it all from Genesis to the very end, and he's reflecting on it. And he's looking at the shape of the Bible and the shape of the story and the shape of God's entire instruction. Not the details, not the minutia, but the whole. And from that level, he's thinking. And so when we hear John say, do you keep the commands we shouldn't be thinking of all the commands in the Bible that have ever been spoken. I mean, the Ten Commandments and the Levitical laws and and all the Sermon on the Mount things and everything Jesus ever said about fasting. And you, you do all these things. But John is speaking at a level, and he's speaking specifically. He's thinking and speaking specifically about a couple commandments. That kind of sums it all up. What is God ultimately after in this whole story of the Bible? What does he want me to do? How would you answer that question? What does God want me to do? And I suppose you could approach that in a lot of different ways. You can go to the Bible and write out every single thing God has ever said. And yeah, in a sense, that is what God wants you to do. Or you can kind of zoom out and say, what does God want me to do with all of this? And John tells us in chapter three, verse 23, exactly what he means. In John first John 3:23, he says, "This is his commandment that we believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as He commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him." And when you realize this is what John means, this is what it means to do the will of God and to keep the commandments, he's thinking specifically about these things. Not all sins, but a particular sin. He says when you don't sin, he's not saying, if you're a real Christian, you'd never sin at all. Because he said in chapter 1 that real Christians do sin. And actually what makes you a real Christian is that you recognize that and you confess that you're a sinner but there's a particular kind of lawlessness and unbelief and self-righteousness that is, that is what John is thinking of, which you never do if you're a Christian. You can't be like that. Or to put it another way, all of these tests are different ways of talking about one thing. It's often observed that the letter of 1 John is like a spiral. He goes around one point again and again and again, but looking at it from different angles. So let me put it this way. To not sin is to do righteousness. To do righteousness is to keep the commandments. To keep the commandments is to believe in the name of the Son of God and to love one another. To believe in the name of the Son of God and to love the believers is to walk in the light. To walk in the light is to do the will of the Father. And when you understand what John is actually saying, then Christians can read the letter of 1 John, and they can be encouraged, and they can answer with a strong affirmative. Do you keep the commandments and do the will of God? You can say, yes, I do. What God wants me to do is believe in Christ and love God. My brothers. If you believe in Jesus, brothers and sisters, if you love God's people, you can be assured that you're born of God and that you will rejoice at his coming when Jesus returns. This is what John wants to encourage you with. He's writing to you who believe that you may know that you have eternal life. And this brings assurance and joy which is a mark of a gospel-shaped life. How should Christians be characterized in the world? We should be characterized by assurance, by joy, and by peace. But it's not automatic. It's something that we need to pursue. If you have trouble with this, if you need help with this, you're not strange. I would encourage you to talk to your pastor. Help, let him help you. Let the elders help you work through your struggles. Let them take you into 1 John, walk you through your fears. If you believe in Jesus, you can have assurance that you have eternal life. So that's the first point I want to make this morning. What does what is, what is a gospel-shaped life look in light of the message of 1 John? Well, we should seek to obtain assurance of our salvation and live in the joy that we have eternal life. But here's another thing, a second major point and takeaway. We need to know who our people are, and we need to love them. Know who your people are and love them. John's purpose in 1 John is not only to help you know whether you're a Christian or not, but also to help you recognize others as well. See, these are tests you don't just apply to yourself. You can apply these tests to others. How do I know if someone else is a Christian or not? And John wants to underscore that Christianity is all about fellowship with God and with God's people. You'll remember we talked about that in Beginning of 1 John. We proclaim these things to you, verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Or in verse 7 of chapter 1, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Let me just remind you the gospel is not simply a message of individual salvation. It is a message of relationship with God and with God's people. Jesus came into the world to deal with our sins that was separating us from God, that was causing a barrier between us and God, so that the relationship with God might be restored. And not just restored to what it was in Eden with Adam and Eve when they first opened their eyes there, but elevated to the level of sonship with God in which we share in the very sonship experienced by Jesus himself with the Father. This is what the gospel brings us. Not merely forgiveness, but sonship with God, relationship with God, as intimate and close as the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And that's not all. Because part of sharing relationship with God is understanding what God is all about. What is the purpose of God in the world? And this is an amazing and strange thing. But when God created the world, He created the world in order to create image bearers on the earth, in order to create people that knew Him and loved Him and had relationship with Him and reflected Him. God is forming still a people for His name a family in which to manifest the glories of his name and to multiply and increase his love. This is what God is about in the world. So, friends, if if your purpose in life, if your objective is kind of the American objective, the American dream, the American dream is, you know, you're an individual, make it... Make it in this world through hard work and enjoy the fruits of your labors. Put your car in the garage and close the door. And enjoy, you know, these cool toys that we can give you. That is is not the vision of the gospel. That is not what God is after. If your objective in life is just keep to myself, let me just entertain myself, That is not what God is after. He's after relationship. He's after family. He's after love. And the gospel elevates not only our relationship with God, but our relationship with one another. We become part of the family of God, and we relate to other Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow members of God's household, and even members of the body of Christ. We are united to Jesus that closely with him and with one another so that we are part of the same body. The ties that unite Christians, the the tie is thicker than physical blood and soil and culture. It is Christ. It is God and his spirit who unite us. As brothers and sisters, we share fellowship and communion together because we know together who God is. This is totally unique. Only your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ share the deepest things with you. The knowledge of God. The knowledge of your sinfulness. The knowledge of God's grace. It's interesting that Jesus said, The world will hate you because it hated me. It's an amazing thing that a man was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, preached the wonderful light and truth of God, and ended up crucified. The world will hate you because it hated me. And the world hated Jesus because he testified of the truth. He testified to the world of the truth. And the world does not love the truth, but rejects the truth, and therefore rejected Jesus. And he said, they're going to reject you too, because if you belong to me and you're my disciple, you know God, you know the truth, you proclaim the truth, the world will hate you too. However, not everyone will hate you, because there are people that have been called out of the world who also know God, who also love God, who also know the truth and proclaim the truth, and they won't hate you. The world will hate you, but you will be loved by my people. And before Jesus departed this world, he gave us one parting command. He said to his disciples, Love one another as I have loved you. And so, brothers and sisters, there are only, ultimately, from John's perspective, 10,000 feet in the air. There's only two camps. There's only two camps. The world and the people of God. I think this is especially relevant today. John wants us to know who we belong to. Who is our people? And we need to not lose focus. It's ultimately not, who who is our people? It's ultimately not America or any country that you come from. Who do you belong to, ultimately? Who are your people? It's not the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. It's not even your natural family. Ultimately, who are your people? It is your brothers and your sisters in Christ. And part of having a gospel-shaped life is knowing who your people are and loving them. By this we prove we belong to him. And by this all men will know that we are the disciples of Christ. This is also the way we show the world who God is. That there are people in this world who love each other. That there are people in this world who love God, who know God, and who love God. And because we love God, we love each other. So, how do we live in light of the truth of 1 John How should our lives be shaped? The Christian life ought to be marked by extravagant joy and and the sweetness of fellowship, because it is a life formed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And neither of these are automatic. So let us receive the message of 1 John and pursue this life with all diligence Let us seek to obtain assurance of our salvation each and every day, reminding ourselves that we are forgiven, that we are loved by God, that we are born again, that we have eternal life, that we are going to rejoice at Christ's coming. And let us also know that we belong to the people of God, and let us receive their love and also love them well, because by loving them, we're really just showing that we love God let us do this and let our, our lives be characterized by the gospel for the glory of God and our eternal good. Would you please stand with me as I pray and remain standing for our final song. Oh, Lord God. Lord, we thank you this morning as we're gathered here. We thank you that your son came into the world 2,000 years ago to testify of the truth. We thank you that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead and that the apostles touched him and bore witness. Lord, we thank you that that witness has echoed down through the ages, and that even today, you make yourself known to this world and to us. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here who know that they're sinners, who know that Jesus is their only hope, who have put their hope in him. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage your people this morning, and assure their hearts That we know you and that you have delivered us from this evil world. And I pray, Father, that you would protect us from the evil one. And Lord, all the voices in this world that seek to confuse us and pull us away and to pull us into false tribes, Lord, I pray that we we would love the people of God. Lord, that we would care for one another in this world, and that by our love for each other, Lord, we would be a witness and a light in this world as we proclaim the gospel to the lost, as we show them a better way. Lord, would you make us witnesses to continue the message. May our lives be marked by joy and this sweet fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.